This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. How about you? Have you always been in Toronto? Um, so I'm from Calgary, actually, but okay. um, but I, I moved to Toronto. I went to university in Ontario, I went to Western, um, and then moved that. to Toronto afterwards uh, to start work. And I was here for five years, and I moved to New York for three years, and then back to Toronto in 2018. So, and I think that this is a good starting point. I mean, we're, we're two people in finance, uh, at least from, from the bachelor perspective. You know, your, your background was in finance, a little bit of investment banking with Merrill Lynch. So curious how, you know, you went from finance to, to full-fledged entrepreneurship. Was, was, the, was that a foresight you had in university or was it just kind of natural? I um, So my family is very entrepreneurial. Uh, my dad, his brothers, my cousins, uh, my grandfather when he first came here um, and even back home. Uh, where he's from, we're high entrepreneurial people. And so I grew up in this family where that was kind of the norm. It's really all I knew. But when I went to university, I, I thought I was just entrepreneurial. I did a bunch of entrepreneurial things during school. And then I think I perhaps fell into the trap that many do of, of seeing this interesting path that I thought would provide me with a bunch of skills that would be relevant to my future life as an entrepreneur. Um, and I followed many of my peers and, and started a role first in investment banking. And then I moved to private equity after a couple of years and spent about three years um, doing that. Um, and so I'd say it, it was an amazing experience that I learned a lot and I learned how to work hard and built a, a very strong attention to detail. <laughs> the long uh, hours. And, yeah, yeah, which, which it's funny, like my, my little brother's now doing his first job after under, undergrad and I kind of like when he has to work really hard because I think it helps you to build some grit <laughs> and resiliency. Um, but it also gave me some really effective mental models and frameworks uh, to view the world through and to assess business opportunities through. But as it pertains to becoming a successful, or I wouldn't even suggest that that's where I am today, but rather an entrepreneur that is effective, I think that I've learned far more in my short amount of time building a company than I did in the seven to 10 years in advance of working within a company or an organization in, in finance. It's really weird, man. And I, and I can vouch for that as well. Like I, I, was, I worked for a, a FinTech startup before rejoining TSX, which was owl.co. And I was with them for five months just because, I mean, it, it was the situation of moving to Chicago, got engaged. But even that five months I was there, I always tell friends that that five months in a startup felt like what you would learn three years at a corporate, you know, and I think just the accountability, even though I wasn't the founder, right. But I was like, you know, the 15th person at the startup, you, you even being as a, you know, one of the, the, let's say first employees, you even have that feeling, which is really interesting. Why would you say like from, from your perspective, moving to towards the entrepreneurship route, what was that transition like going from corporate, especially something like investment banking? Like, was it natural to you given that your parents were entrepreneurs or? Um, I'd say that my transition was a little bit more perhaps seamless than most. Um, and it probably has a bit to do with the steps that took place in between me starting my career in investment banking and then starting my first company. Um, and so I, I spent two years as an investment banker right out of undergrad. Then I went and, and um, worked in private equity for about three years. Um, which was an amazing experience. I actually then moved to the U.S., to New York. I went to business school, but I did so primarily so I could just immerse myself in the startup ecosystem uh, mm -hmm. and just get a sense for what it was like to work with different startups. And so I'd spend like a day or two week in school and then five or six days a week actually working with different startups in the city in roles in product management and marketing and operations. And so I got a really clear sense for what it was like to operate at a frenetic pace where you as you know, in my role spending a day or two with the company was given a bunch of responsibility and held accountable to deliver results which was incredibly exciting uh, but also challenging and a pretty daunting task and after spending much of my time in, in business school doing roles like this on the side i actually then joined a venture capital firm called mm -hmm. fj labs where i actually both i did two things one is i helped them invest in early stage companies so primarily seed or series a stage companies where we would come in and provide a bit of support to the, the founders capital to help them take this idea and actually make it a reality. Uh, and so I got a chance to work with a bunch of amazing entrepreneurs and see some of the things that lead to success and more often than not, the things that, that don't, uh, which can be pretty helpful learning. And then while working with the team at FJ Labs, I actually helped them to, to launch and start two companies, one of which was in the insurance vertical and one of which was a marketplace for jobs. Um, and so had an opportunity without necessarily being the one in the leadership role, the company fully accountable to get a sense of what does it take to go from literally zero to one, from idea to people in a room, capital, your first customers, your first product. Um, and so it, it was a really nice way to learn while the stakes were low, which I think set me and, and my team up um, 
a little bit better to, to get started when we launched properly a couple of years ago. Uh, so I think I'm very fortunate to have had access to those opportunities and, and learned an immense amount. Um, and I think that's what made the transition reasonably seamless. That said, it's entirely different when, you, when you're actually in the seat and you're starting the company and it's a little bit like that Mike Tyson quote where everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Well, when you start a company and when you work in a startup, you get punched in the face a lot, multiple times a day. Um, and it's incredibly important just to get back up and, and recognize that you need to adapt your plan literally daily if you want to survive. Uh, and that's the fun of it. That's the excitement of it. Yeah, it's, it's so true, right? Even like to your point about the punches, uh, and I, I think, you know, it's funny from a business perspective, you were in like the, the most glorious roles, right? As we all, often joke about in business, like investment banking, PE, VC, these are often things like people always, you know, uh, fight hard to get into for, for I, guess, I guess, good reasons. Um, wearing the investment hat, though, is very different than the, the, you know, the startup founder hat. You were dealing with a lot of startups. Curious now that you're, you're a startup founder yourself. What did you take from whether it's the VC, PE world, or even iBanking world that you really use a lot day-to-day uh, as a startup founder? Um, so I think I'll answer that question in a second. One thing that I think I didn't have when I was an investor and I was on the other side of the table from entrepreneurs is mm. enough empathy for what they're going through and what it actually takes to succeed and, and that amount of resilience that's required just to get through the challenging moments that that are actually there every day. I mean, there's as many amazing moments as there are scary moments in any day or week. And it takes a certain type of person to get through that. And I think anyone who works in a startup for more than, who lasts for more than a couple of months has that resiliency, which is why they've been successful. Uh, in terms of what I brought with me, there's actually, there's quite a few things. I think the one that, that I use probably the most often is um, a, a concept that we actually use quite often when doing due diligence on companies to invest in which was to say, let's go and, and look at the potential market opportunity and list out what needs to be true for it to be a successful outcome, for it to be an amazing investment. And let's rank order those things from least likely to be true to most likely to be true, and then build a plan to actually validate those hypotheses uh, and to test them in as quick and as scrappy a way as possible. Um, and that's really how we run things at properly. And I think how most startups get off the ground and start to, to iterate is to say, we have a bunch of ideas. Some of them are crazy. Some of them we have a lot more confidence in. And those that we don't have as much confidence in, let's go find a really effective and cheap way to go test it quickly, uh, to set our experiments up in a structured manner where we can actually learn from the results of that experiment uh, and then build upon that day by day by day. Um, and so that's that's been a highly effective framework. And we've used it both when evaluating a new feature to launch in a product through to a new business unit to launch. Um, and in the case of Properly, we actually changed our service model over the course of the last year, um, still serving the same customers with a generally similar service offering, but one that was fundamentally different enough that it required a lot of really serious conversations in the company to say, should we give up what we were once doing in favor of this, this new concept that we have a lot more excitement about? And validating that it was the right choice required that type of, of structured thinking uh, and evaluation. Um, so I'd say that's, that's the first thing and probably the, the biggest one that comes to mind. Yeah, and I love that. I, I want to get to properly for sure, and, and especially that pivot you're talking about. Definitely something I want to cover. Just right before that, right when we're when you're talking about the ideation stage, I think one of the benefits of being like even for me working with TSX, being with a lot of the you know entrepreneurs and founders and businesses, one of the cool things is you're always around ideas. So I'm curious, like as virtue or by virtue of you being in the VC world, being surrounded by constant ideas, constant entrepreneurs that are coming up with new things. You guys were on the earlier earlier stage of of the VC investing uh, segment. Curious, like, did that lead to the idea of properly? Like, what what was it about the real estate segment that you saw that there's a pain point, whether personally or through consensus of the market, that led you to start this this uh, this venture? Um, I mean, I think like at a high level, most investors, particularly real estate investors, look at opportunities through a pretty simple framework, which is is the market's big and is there a need for change within it? So is there like a clear customer signal that there needs to be something different? That's what many would refer to as a, a potential total addressable market. The second is, is there a business model uh, or a product innovation that is sufficiently differentiated that it's actually worth uh, pursuing and that might actually make a dent in capturing some of that market? And then finally, do you have the right team to go and pursue that opportunity? Um, and the market might change, the business model might change over time. And so the team matters a lot. Um, and it's probably the most important of those of the elements of that equation. Um, and so when I was when I was coming up with the concept alongside my co-founders to launch properly, we were viewing things through that framework, which was is the market opportunity 
big enough? Is the customer problem real enough? And is our proposed solution sufficiently innovative and better that people will perhaps adapt it and, and, and move towards it and obviously do so in a way that generates an attractive economic value proposition for the company as well as for the customer? And are we the right people to actually go and realize that, to take advantage of that opportunity to build uh, the type of company that, that can be um, category defining, which is really what our ambition is. Um, and when it comes to properly, I, I mentioned before that my family is quite entrepreneurial and, and actually a lot of that entrepreneurial background comes from the real estate industry. My grandfather, the first year he moved to Canada was to get his real estate license. Uh, my dad and my brother and, and, and uncles actually all do a lot of in real estate investment and development. My cousin's a real estate agent. And so this industry has been, I've been around it for a very long time. That's where and it comes from. See, I'm, I'm giving it back to you now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's always felt it's always felt like something I've, I've understood. And to be honest, yeah, most people that have bought a home or have been around the industry tend to develop a passion for real estate. It's just an exciting emotional uh, and pretty important part of life. And, and it became very clear, especially actually when I moved to the U S that when comparing the, the difference between the U S market and the Canadian market, that the Canadian market hasn't seen very much innovation in, in a very long time. And that lack of innovation is impacting the lives of almost every Canadian who goes through the experience of buying or selling or even owning a home. Um, and there's been two, at least if you look internationally, there's been two streams of innovation. There's been informational innovation and a transformation of the industry where it, it is focused largely on giving people access to the information and the tools they need to make effective decisions. How do you go find the perfect home? How do you understand what your existing home is worth? So you can go and, and understand your purchasing power and the value of your single biggest financial asset. In Canada, it's actually really difficult to do those two things effectively. We went from this era of um, physical ads in classified sections of newspapers to online search via a relatively rudimentary home discovery portal. Like and we haven't, yeah, we haven't innovated past that in about 10 years, which is, which is crazy to me given how- Why, why do you think much, that is? Um, I mean, I think that it is, there have been attempts historically. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of the attempts have been focused on how do we, how do we make a better tool that we can then generate revenue from? And the revenue primarily has been generated from selling ads uh, or, or leads to real estate agents. And so a lot of the products that have been built have been more so serving the industry and the agents than consumers. Um, and I think that where a lot of the opportunity lies is to build something that's very consumer focused. And that's on the informational side. And then transactionally, the actual process of buying and selling a home is expensive. It's complicated. It's incredibly stressful. It takes months of your life, an immense amount of effort and work. Um, and it's actually not designed in a way that meets the needs of most, of most people. Particularly if you're trying to buy and sell, you've got this complicated dilemma where you don't know if you should buy first um, and risk your home not selling in time, being stuck holding two mortgages, or do you, do you sell first and risk having to move into temporary accommodation if your, your home sells before you find the next price. And so there's so much opportunity to create just a better experience that actually meets the needs of, of a Canadian consumer. And so we saw an opportunity to go and enter this enormous market that is many hundreds of billions of dollars where the pain point is so visceral and so real for people because it is this significant milestone that they go through and yet the process is riddled with pain. Um, and we thought that we had the right team and capabilities to actually go in and make an impact in that industry and an idea for a business model that would solve a lot of these pain points in a pretty interesting fashion. And so um, I bring a bit of the finance background and the startup background to my, my team. Uh, one of my co-founders, Sheldon, was part of the team that actually launched Uber in Canada and helped to scale that company up. And so brings a lot of the ops uh, competency and skill set. And then Craig uh, was one of the early employees of Research Emotion, where he actually co-created BlackBerry Messenger and the technology that enables uh, push notifications and phones. And so he brings the technology and the data science aspect to it. And so we we built, uh, we started to build a set of tools that provide people with the information they need when searching for a new home or trying to understand the value of their existing home. So you can go to properly.ca and you can get a free instant estimate of your existing home value, as well as a record of, of recent homes that sold in your neighborhood and active listings. And you can go and check that daily and it's updated. It's this amazing, beautiful product that gives you all the information you need to make a decision about when to buy, whether to sell, um, and everything in that in that vein. And then we have this service that allows people to go and buy and actually move into their next home before they've even listed their existing home in the market. So they can have the confidence to go win the home that they that they want to buy, and they don't have to deal with the stress of selling because 
they're able to have their home sold after they've moved into the new one. And we manage that on their behalf. And so we provide those two services, that service and the technology to our customers to hopefully provide them with a dramatically better home buying and selling experience. Yeah, that's one of the things I was going to ask. Like, are you, are you guys basically providing that, that service in the, you know, from the back office of properly? Like, okay, now as, as, a, as a user, I get, I get the data. I have all the insights now that I need to basically move into my second home. And you sit obviously in the middle, right? Like I, I'm a homeowner already. Let's say I want to upgrade and move into a larger home because now I have, you know, a kid on the way as an example. I can move in, have the data, but you guys are also from the, from the back office side of things, you're managing that whole process for me, essentially. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And we have a team of very experienced real estate agents as well as part of the property organization that will provide the support to our customers to go and find and tour new homes, make offers, negotiate. And then once they bought that home, we'll manage the listing of their existing homes so that it sells for the best possible price. And so we'll clean it and we'll repair it and we'll stage it. And we'll make sure it looks amazing so that it sells very quickly and for the right to, to the right buyer. Um, and we think a little bit about how most home buyers go through this journey that starts with dreaming. You're dreaming about that perfect new home. You're, your family is starting to get a little bit older. You think, oh, maybe I want some more space. And you start searching online. And so we have a, a product on a website that lets you go and search for any home in the market and understand not just where it is and what it looks like, but a bunch of other rich information behind that, including a prediction as to what price it'll sell for. And then eventually you're going to move to the planning phase, which is, okay, well, how much can I afford? How do I get financing? How do I pick an agent? How do I actually navigate the complexity of this process? And that's where you can go and get access to your free proper price report properly. That'll tell you how much your existing home will let you sell for, and then provide a number of other bits of information and features that'll help you navigate that decision of, okay, is this the right time to buy or sell? And then once you're actually ready to move, we have our team that's available to say, we'll guarantee the sale of your existing home, which means that you can go and unlock all your capital so you can go and get the financing needed to buy the next home. We'll help you buy that home, move into it. And once you've done so, we'll then list your existing home in the market. And if it doesn't sell within 90 days, we'll just buy it at that originally guaranteed price. So there's no risk to the customer at all. And so the hope is that from dreaming through to planning through to execution, property can be the trusted advisor to our customers, uh, both through online search all the way through to I have so many questions, dude, but uh, let, me just, <laughs> let, let me just manage. Okay. So the, the, I guess the first one too is um, what, one of the things that at least, at least resonated with me, which I didn't think a lot of uh, is it's already complicated enough to buy your first home, but with, with the second home, there are, there are added complexities, right? Cause when you sell, you're getting the return of, of that first home. I mean, hopefully if depending on the situation, and then with that, you assess what you can buy with the second home, getting another mortgage. Like there are other factors that you have to take into account. And that can sometimes, you know, create kind of like a lag within the process. So that, that's the first thing that I think resonated a lot with me in terms of making that experience easier. First question, and then uh, I'm just going to say the two questions so I don't forget. But the first one is, what was the process like before you guys came into market two years ago? And then the second question is, you mentioned that you basically reduced the default risk by buying the home if you don't succeed in completing the transaction, how do you reduce that risk from your perspective or liability? Um, so the, the way that people manage a purchase and sale today is that they will hire a real estate agent to help them navigate the purchase. Um, and there are some amazing agents out there that are incredibly customer centric and, and are experienced enough to help them understand the risk uh, associated with managing that, that process. Um, and then, Typically, what they'll do is they'll find that home, they'll buy it, um, but they won't actually yet know what their home will sell for. And so they're taking a bit of a gamble to say, I hope I can get a certain amount of money out of my home. And then once they bought the next home, they'll then list their existing home in the market. And so you're then in this process where you've already bought your next home, there's a closing date in the future, and uh, you then list your existing home. So you're facilitating showings and open houses and getting the home ready. And you're hoping that, first of all, it sells for a price that allows you to unlock enough equity and capital to actually afford that new home. And secondly, that it's going to sell in time for the closing. So you're not stuck in a situation where you're, you're owning both homes. And so in, in really hot markets like Toronto and Ottawa and, and some of the U.S. markets where it's actually really competitive to buy um, and home sell quickly, you, you effectively have to buy first. Um, otherwise, you're just not going to be in a position to be competitive. Um, Whereas in slower markets, people often choose to sell first and then buy. If you sell first and then buy, you could be in a situation where your home sells and you don't have anywhere to go. You're going to move in with your in-laws for weeks or months until, until that new home comes up that you want to buy or, or closes. Um, and so that's the way that people go through the process today. And, and that really is the alternative to property. It's just going through this, 
this chicken and egg dilemma of not knowing which of those two transactions to deal with first, but you also have to A, live through the listing process uh, and B, hope that you can unlock enough equity to, to buy the next home in time. Um, in, terms of, in terms of how we manage the risk, um, so there's a couple of things that we need to think through at a high level. The first is that we need to make sure that we are in a position to actually have the capital necessary to buy those homes in the event that they don't sell within 90 days. Um, in a market like Toronto, which is our primary market, an average home sells in 15 to 20 days. And so most homes sell within that initial window. We actually have never had to buy a home because it didn't sell within 90 days. But we actually went and raised a very large pool of dedicated capital. We have $100 million that exists solely to, to um, support us in the event that the home doesn't sell. And so that's the capital that we use to ensure that our customer, most importantly, and also properly, is not in a position where the home uh, can't be purchased or can't be sold. Um, and then beyond that, we, we, um, we have a, a very large and dedicated internal risk function that helps us to assess which homes we should or should not be making offers on and what price that, that, uh, that guarantee is set at. And is the platform offered only for Canada right now or is it U.S. as well? I know you guys have offices it's, in Ottawa. And, and, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So we, we offer services in, in Toronto, uh, the entire GTA, as well as Ottawa. And then our free products, our, our home search tool, as well as our proper price report, it's available in Toronto and Ottawa and in Calgary at the moment. But okay. our plans are to be in every major Canadian city as soon as we can. Well, it's funny. I have a buddy here in Chicago. Now that like I'm, I'm you know, learning more about the product, um, he actually recently sold his, his house or condo in, in Chicago. And, and doing exactly what you talked about. So he, he completed the close and he's now living with it with a, another friend of ours um, in his condo just for the time being and trying to find a new place. So, you know. So it's imagine doing that when you have both parents are working, you've got a yeah. couple kids, maybe a dog. Imagine doing that during a pandemic when oh my God, you yeah. don't even really want to be interacting with, with other people. It's an incredibly stressful process and it doesn't need to be. And yeah. that's, the insight that we had is that there are really simple changes we can make to reorder the process that makes it so much more customer friendly. Um, I'm just going to call him up and be like, dude, there's a service called properly. Unfortunately, it's not in the, in the U S right now. So I'm just going to make your life more miserable, but it, it's good. Cause it actually highlights how important the pain point is. I think that's why, you know, having this personal uh, case study that I'm sharing with you is actually showing me how, how important this, this actually is, you know, to the market. Yeah. So yeah. it's very so the, interesting. So, I mean, the service has been very, very well received by, by people for the same reason you're describing. Anyone who's been around a real estate transaction recognizes that it's, it just doesn't make sense the way it's structured and it's incredibly stressful. And so as a result, we've, you know, we've been fortunate to have a lot of demand uh, from customers for the service. Gotcha. So, so we kind of covered the, how the idea came about. We talked about kind of the pain point you highlighted a little bit on, on the capital side of things. Obviously, raising $100 million is no easy feat by any means. Um, maybe being a, you know investment banker, former VC, you're a bit desensitized to, to it. So am I. But like, you know, a lot of my friends are engineers. I don't know if you get this often, but like we often say it so, you know, so casually, like, oh, we just raised $100 million. But then when you actually take a step back for people outside of the space, they're like, wow, you know, like that's a ton of money. And I know for, for you guys, a lot of it was debt financing curious for a lot of aspiring founders like how was that process for you being on the other side and what was the thought process behind it um, in terms of maybe the use of proceeds and, and what type of financing to get for your specific situation so properly we we've raised two separate types of capital uh the first being equity capital and so that's come mm -hmm. primarily from venture capital investors that are buying a stake in our business in exchange for providing us with that money. And, and hopefully they provide more than money. They also provide expertise and support to, across a number of other areas of the business. And then we've raised debt capital to help us actually fund the purchases of homes. Um, and ultimately both of those types of capital have investors behind them that are looking for something. In the case of equity investors, they're looking for the opportunity to partner with some amazing entrepreneurs and to get access to a return that is many multiples of what they're investing, probably over a seven to 10 year period. And they're assuming that in many cases, the companies won't succeed. A small share of them that do succeed will return you know, hundreds of times their money and the ones that don't will, will offset that to some degree. And debt investors are thinking less so about the upside opportunity. They don't so much care if this can be a 10 or $100 billion company. They're instead saying, how do I mitigate my risk and make sure that I and protecting the downside and getting paid 
a reasonable consistent rate of return for the capital being provided. And so in the case of properly to have success in raising a hundred million dollar credit facility, we need to be able to demonstrate that we are highly effective at predicting what prices homes will sell for and demonstrating that with a clear track record and that we have the operational capabilities to manage the purchase and sale of those homes in a way that is very consistent and seamless and doesn't generate losses. And so it takes, it takes proven success and a track record to, to be able to, to raise that type of capital. And so honestly, it's just a testament to the strength of our team and their ability to go and, and deliver a set of proven results and returns that put us in a position to have the opportunity to, to work with those types of investors. Um, but it's still difficult. It still takes a lot of time. And, and uh, what was your and, feeling? Uh, dude? Like, I, I know, again, I know it's not something I don't want to make it seem like the, the raising part is like the, the celebratory aspect, but obviously it's important to help you achieve your milestones. And again, it, it's right for your situation, but I'm just curious, like uh, as a, as a first time founder, when you raised, and, and again, I mean, doing this as a first time founder is even more difficult for people not in the space, just, just making that very clear. Um, so curious, like what your personal feeling was and what did you do the night of when you got the news? <laughs> um, Give me something good, Anshul, all right? Not like, so you, you know uh, what, I just walked my dog. It was like a normal day. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> um, so we, we did have a bit of a celebration. Um, I think we, we, we don't have a culture of properly where we view fundraising as um, the end itself. It rather is a means to an end and it puts us in position to go and delay our customers. Um, you, you might be able to see it, but behind me, there's this bottle of champagne. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. That, that bottle of champagne, uh, my wife actually gave it to, uh, to, uh, to myself, my co-founders when we moved into our first office and we just okay. started the company, just the three of us working at, this desk in a big open co-working space and uh, one of my co-founders wasn't there and so we said okay let's wait until he gets back and then we'll we'll drink it together and they got back and and we were chatting we're like well we haven't actually done anything all we've done is just started this company we haven't actually helped a customer we haven't bought a home we haven't uh, helped someone navigate this process and so we said all right once we actually help our first customer go through a sale then we'll then we'll do it the champagne um and, uh, and then we had that first customer and we're like, well, you know, they've sold a home, but they haven't bought the next home. So we have to wait until, <laughs> until that happens so we can celebrate. And it's kept going on and on and on. It's always we something. Have this, yeah. We have this internal culture now properly. And we talk about this bottle of champagne quite often where it's, it's never done, but the customer's never satisfied. There's always the next objective. And so that's been a bit of our ethos internally, which is amazing. And that I think we've built a culture where everyone's striving for the next thing and to do bigger and better and to continue to raise the bar and to dream as big as possible. Um, but and to come back to your question more specifically, it also tends to result in us not celebrating those those wins as, as well as we should. And so we didn't open up all the champagne when we closed the facility, but perhaps nice. we uh, perhaps we should have. Yeah, yeah, no, for 100%. And that's why I said that, that disclaimer, it's not like that's the, the you know, the, the means to the end. It's just, it is something to celebrate in terms of like, there's more growth coming. And I think that's the exciting part. Uh, and to your point, I think this is more personal. I want to get into the personal side just in, in a sec, but the ability to like actually celebrate the small wins. I think for anybody who's ambitious and like, you know, wants to achieve a lot in a small amount of time is tough to do sometimes, right? Like reminding yourself of just, even if it's, it's just taking a quick step back. Like I think podcasts help a lot with that. You know what I mean? Like even you telling the story, I can sense that, you know, you're kind of reflective on, on what, what had happened so far. And it's pretty cool, right? Like to hear it from a different perspective. I don't know if you feel that way, but uh, certainly for me, it yeah. does. Yeah, I do. And I think it comes back, to the conversation we were having before about how when you're starting a company, there's a lot of hard times alongside the good times. And if you don't celebrate those good times, then uh, it just, you know, the journey's not as enjoyable as it otherwise would be. Mm. Um, and so we, we don't do it as often as we should as a team. And I think we, we kind of kick ourselves for that, but um, we've been, we've been doing perhaps a slightly better job over the last six months or so of recognizing when things happen that are, that are pretty special. When we raised the, the largest ever amount of company, of capital ever for a prop tech company in Canada. That's a pretty cool thing. And it's a testament to, to the hard work and, and the strong work that we've done thus far. Um, and, uh, and so we, we actually have this, this um, ritual at our weekly all hands meeting, which is, uh, we call it shoutouts, where we basically just take a couple minutes at the, ever, at the end of every all hands meeting to shout out our peers for things that they've done that are in accordance with our, our company's cultural norms. And so it's a nice time to take a step like back that. and just reflect on you know, what we've done that we're proud of and, and what our peers have done for us that uh, that was particularly helpful or just awesome in general. Um, and so it's been, 
it's been a nice way to have some of those small celebrations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, recognition, recognition is super important. You talk a lot about team, right? Obviously, that's super important to every startup. How do, how do you convince when you're first starting out at the helm of properly? How do you convince people that have led Uber in Canada, RIM, you talked about Wealthsimple, Borrowell, which is another, another notable startup in Toronto. Like, how do you convince these folks to join you on this journey? What are you telling them? Um, I mean, I think it comes back to those, um, those three vectors on which you assess any opportunity, which is, is the market opportunity big? Is the business model interesting? And are you going to work with some amazing people? Um, and so I think those three things need to be true. And I think we've always done a really effective job at helping to, to convey the vision and to evangelize the opportunity that we're going after. I think importantly, one thing that's been very true properly from day one is that we are very much focused on an outcome. We want to change an industry for the better. We want to be a category defining company in the context of Canadian real estate. And we see a, a very clear path to doing so. Um, but we also want to build the type of company that we're all proud to have built and where we enjoy the journey along the way. And so I think that that matters a lot to us. And I think that has been recognized in a lot of the people that have chosen to join the team, which is that we, we want to enjoy the little challenges every day. And we want to create an opportunity where people can, can grow and learn and develop personally and, and professionally. And so I think that, that balancing that very intentional creation of culture with the pursuits of this very exciting vision um, has helped us to, to recruit some really exceptional people that um, I feel very privileged to get the chance to work with. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're kind of painting the picture you're, you're basically selling people on the vision of what this, this really could be, right? And you're kind of chasing, a, um, I guess, a, a piece in the market that, that is just not being served right now, uh, at least as, as well as properly, I would say. Um, the other caveat, like I remember when I was at Owl, you know, one of the things that we'd always, something I learned, which I, I thought was, was kind of humorous at the time, but it, it's really important, obviously, from a BD sales perspective is like, we'd always talk about no BS in a pipeline. You know what I mean? Like, like there is no, no room, no time for you to just put a ton of prospects, you know, in the funnel or the CRM just to show that like, oh, you know, we're doing really well. Because when you're 15 people post-seed, pre-series A, there's no time for that. So curious, what's your like, what's your metric or level uh, in terms of like the, the bullshit radar? Like what do you just, you, you just not accept internally? Um, we, um, we have a very... So there's a couple of things. So I think number one is that we have a cultural norm, which is compete as a team. And so that yes. sounds generic and, and a little bit trite, but what it really stands for and represents is that we don't celebrate individual success, we celebrate team success. And so no one cares what one person did. We care about what we achieved together. And I think that tends to result in, first of all, people self-selecting into that culture, but also um, the types of people that are trying to pad their individual stats just to, to, to appear effective, that doesn't result in a pat on the back. Um, and that's not the, not the type of thing that's celebrated. Um, and so I think that's that's been probably one pretty effective way um, I like that in that effect. Um, the other thing is that we have a culture where our team has very strong opinions, but they're, they're loosely held. And mm. so what that means is that we expect that everyone is going to come into a conversation having done the work to have an opinion. And they should stand behind that opinion because it's based on all the available information that they had at that point in time, but that they should be very willing and open to receiving new data and to changing their perspective on the basis of it. And so we have this dynamic where people, first of all, don't care if they are the one whose idea wins and there is no um, you know, loudest voice or highest paid person in the room is making the decision. Um, and you have this group of people who are highly curious and really just want to go and seek the best possible answer to any given problem or, or question. And so, if you pair those two things together, you have this very team focused, forward thinking, growth mindset oriented culture where um, there, there's just no time for, for BS. It just doesn't help us to serve uh, our customers or our internal objectives. Have you, have you watched the, the, the series on Netflix that I'm forgetting on the title, but it's, it's, it's relating to coaches? Oh, the playbook. That's what it's called. I, I, I haven't, but I, I saw the ad for it with Doc Rivers. It's on my list. Just watch the first episode with Doc Rivers, trust. And, and in, that, uh, in that episode specifically, I'm gonna relate this, and this, this is all gonna make sense, I promise. But he talks about this, this word that he uh, basically was told about by someone he knew, which is uh, Ubuntu. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. an African term that basically encompasses like teamwork. It's U-B-U-N-T-U, which, which I guess translates to something loosely 
that I can only be as great as I am if you are uh, the best version of yourself. Like for me to, to succeed, you have to succeed at either the same level or even greater, right? And I, I think what he did was he took that word, created obviously a personal messaging around it. And that's what led to the Celtics at the time, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce, and uh, Rajon Rondo, you know, three pretty big superstars to cooperate as a team versus seek individual success. Uh, and it was also the word, or it's more than a word, it's a way of life. I should stop saying word. But that's also what led to the end of, a, of the apartheid in, in South Africa. You know, the, the belief behind the word, I should say. Mm-hmm. So pretty cool. I mean, I think you'd, 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 uh, you'd find it interesting as it relates to your yeah. culture. Yeah, I love that. That's quite powerful. Um, and then just switching over to the, to the, I guess, personal side of things. You lead, I guess, a team close to 50 people, right? Somewhere around that? Mm-hmm. that and, and, you know, obviously, I guess from any, any perspective that you look at it, it's pretty daunting, man, especially in a, in a time like COVID. There's a lot of uncertainties. Some verticals and some companies are faring better than others, for sure. Needless to say, like everyone is dealing with some level of anxiety, right? Like in this, it's not, a, it's not an easy time, right? Let's just say it that way. And I think you're transitioning. You talked a little bit about pivots. How do you personally stay mentally astute through it all, especially being at the helm of an organization with 50 people looking at you for direction? Uh, that's a really good question. I think uh, it certainly hasn't been an easy time for anybody, um, but at the very least, it's a shared experience we're all going through together. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a, there's a bit of a resolve that comes from that. Um, I think that, I mean, there's a couple of things. I'm, I'm very fortunate to have you know, a wife and our little dog at home that I get to spend time with. It's quite grounding. Um, exercise is a big part of my life and just creating space to go and, and be focused on something that isn't my thoughts and, and work. Um, I find it be a very helpful way to stay grounded. And so that's a part of my daily routine. Um, that is I, it morning? Almost when do you find morning. time to work out? Morning? Yeah. yeah, it's morning. It's like between 5 and 7 a.m. typically. Nice. Um, and that's like my personal meditative time. And, and that's really all it's taken thus far for me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm in a lucky situation where I don't have kids at home that are occupying a lot of, of time and attention that and creating other stresses and pressures. And, you know, my family's thankfully you know, not been in a situation where health has been an issue as a result of the pandemic. So I think, again, very fortunate. And I know others have had more challenging personal circumstances to grapple with than, than, uh, than I have. Hmm. Yeah, that's very true, man. Exercise is super important. And I think sometimes like downplayed, right? You hear that with a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the early days, like once they get some sort of success, they kind of take a step back and then focus on themselves. And I think now there, there's like a, I guess, a surge of talking about mental health and, and exercise and, and self-development as you're actually going through the journey. Because I think it's super important. It's like running a marathon, dude. Like this is not uh, a hundred meter dash or something, right? I mean, I think you can attest to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you definitely need to take care of your body and create enough time to rest and sleep. I think staying fit matters a lot. And also just doing something that allows you to be a bit more mindful. And I find that cycling or, or running is, is the most effective way for me to do so. And then obviously just creating time for um, the exploration of ideas that aren't directly related to your work. And so like reading is a big part of my, my daily and weekly routine as well, where it's actually important to step away from the day-to-day of our business where we're just immersed in the weeds and thinking about these very, very unique problems. And then to take a step back and recognize that there are ideas from other disciplines and other parts of life that you can then apply into our personal circumstance or context uh, that will yield really effective results. Um, what are you so reading? The things that, right now. Um, the book I'm reading right now is called Positioning, um, which is hmm. like the art of brand positioning. Um, okay. And it's actually, I'm not done the book yet, but uh, I'm about three quarters of the way through. Um, and it's been, Would you it's recommend been it? uh, thus far, yes, I've learned a lot from it. I don't come from a background or experience in marketing. We actually just brought on board um, our first ever uh, VP marketing who joined this week. Uh, we're quite nice. excited about it. And we're, thank you, and we're in the midst of, of thinking about how we need to better invest in, in an articulation of our brand messaging and strategy. And so this has just been an exercise in me trying to learn a little bit more uh, about mm. this, uh, this discipline so I can be a more effective thought partner to, to my team as we go through this exercise. Interesting. And, and what would you say is probably your favorite book of all time? <sighs> favorite book of all time. I don't think I have a a favorite book of all time. Um, What's the one you've recommended most to people? Maybe that's a better one, I guess. So 
the, the book I've recommended to the most people this year, I'll constrain it a little bit further than your question, <laughs> um, is, because uh, I, I think it changes often and I like to gift books yeah. to people uh, from time to time, but nice. um, I, I just read a book called Cokeland. Um, Cokeland? Cokeland, K-O-C-H-L-A-N-D, which is, it's a biography about Charles Koch, who's a, a highly, highly polarizing figure uh, in a U.S. context. And he's one of the, he, he built a very large, one of the largest private companies in the U.S. Um, that has primarily been focused on energy extraction and distribution. And so uh, he and his and uh, his company have funded a lot of the Tea Party movement in the U.S. as, as well as a lot of research and, and advocacy against um, um, initiatives that are trying to solve climate issues. And so he's the type of person that I actually disagree with on almost every possible uh, you know, personal societal level. That said, uh, it's a really interesting expose into the approach that he took to building his business and his, his philosophies on life and the impact that he's had on the U.S. And so it was a really interesting um, exploration into the mind of somebody that I otherwise probably would never be able to, to get a chance to explore and have a conversation with. Uh, and it's just a, a really exceptionally researched and detailed book um, that I learned a lot yeah. from. I did not expect you to say that one. I, I've never read that book, but I'm definitely going to after that. And I love how you actually pointed the fact that he like completely disagrees with you from a personal level on like values, but, but the, the business mind is something different. Right. And, and you can always, I guess, learn that I, I like your approach to that at least. Right. It's not like groupthink, like you're not aligning with people who are like you essentially. Yeah. I try to focus most of my reading on things that I just don't know anything about. Um, and it, it's, sometimes that leads to me discovering ideas that I, that I resonate strongly with. And in some cases like this book, it's those that I, perhaps I'm more strong in my resolve against, um, which is also not a necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Well, on the marketing side, there's a book called Influence, if you've ever checked it out. Probably the, yeah. my favorite uh, marketing book. Yeah. Yeah. By uh, Cialdini. It's, it's a good book. Correct. Yeah. Um, listen, I'm, obviously, we're, we're, we're getting close on time. Last question for you, and, and this might be more generic, so feel free, as you did with the book uh, question, to filter it down. Um, we talked a bit about kind of lessons learned, you know, through your experience as an entrepreneur. Uh, and in a work in progress, obviously, but uh, curious, like what, what advice would you give to aspiring founders, one, and then two, because I know this question comes a lot. My cousin actually asked me this question recently. Uh, what advice would you give for someone looking to actually get into the VC or PD world from university? Um, I'll start with the first one. So, and it's, it's pretty simple advice. Um, and I actually still spend a lot of time working with the team at FJ Labs, the venture fund that I I used to work with and, and connecting with some of the aspiring entrepreneurs that they're looking to back. And I'd say like the, the biggest piece of advice I give is that team matters more than anything else. Um, and being an entrepreneur can be a very exhausting and grueling and lonely journey. And so making sure you're surrounded by people who share the same values as you um, and will be resilient to those ups and downs is just incredibly important. And the market opportunity you're pursuing will likely change. The business model will likely change. The thing that's the hardest to change is that initial group of, of founders that you, you choose to pursue the journey with. And so be highly, highly selective um, in, in who you work with. And I think I've been incredibly lucky to, to, to work with the folks that I'm, I'm spending time with today. Um, and then pair, paired with that is, uh, is like, as you bring on the early team, just make sure to share as much context as possible. Um, sharing context, not necessarily giving control, gives people the ability to understand where you're going and, and why you're making decisions that can then put them in a much better position to make their own decisions and to operate accountably. Um, and you'll feel a lot more comfortable empowering them to go and, and deliver. Um, advice for someone who wants to get into PE or VC. To be honest, they're, they're a little bit different. I think that in the case of, of venture capital, uh, and it depends on the stage at which you're investing. In my case, I actually went from private equity at a late stage. We were investing like 500 million to billion dollar equity checks. And so these companies were like three to $5 billion in enterprise value. And so these are big companies with sophisticated management teams in mature industries. And the strength that I could bring to the table as an aspiring private equity investor was, um, do I have a lot of analytical rigor and do I have a structured approach to evaluating market opportunities and business models? And so a ton of reading about other businesses, reading public financial statements and um, and just general like, um, filings is, is really helpful. And then speaking to other strong investors and getting a sense for them as to what's led to success. And obviously you can go and, and test your capabilities by investing in the public equity markets. Um, venture investing, particularly at the early stage, is an entirely different beast where 
I went from this late stage investing to then being a seed stage investor at FJ Labs, where, I mean, going back to the idea of the market changing, the business model changing, the unit economics not being well defined yet, really- It's an art. It's an art, but, but you're assessing yeah. people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I thought I knew what I was doing and I, looking back on it now, didn't. And so I think one of the most effective ways to become an effective early stage venture investor is actually to go and work at a startup. Uh, or to start your own company and you'll get a much better appreciation for what it takes to succeed in that environment and obviously if you compare those two skills together um it can be it can be a pretty powerful combo that i think would serve anybody across either venture or private equity where i think we see far few uh, too few people that actually come from background of, of actually being an operator if you found this podcast useful make sure to share it out with your community and if you haven't already done so subscribe to the podcast and i'll see you next time
If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.